We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. First pick in the 1991 NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select Larry Johnson from University of Virginia. I'm not supposed to be here, man. A lot of people from where I'm from, you know, don't, don't make it. Charlotte, we're back. Welcome, Hornets fans. This is Richie. We thank you guys for joining us for another Buzz Beat. Please make sure you rate us and review us on Apple Podcast. And if it's funny, if it's thoughtful, we'll definitely give it a read on an upcoming episode. On today's episode, uh, we wanted to get to a couple of things involving their most recent game against the Minnesota Timberwolves. But uh, we are just going to exchange what we thought were the most intriguing or important stats that we've been keeping an eye on. And we're just going to go round robin, pass them, passing them back and forth between Lee and I. So I will be joined by Lee. Lee, how's it going? How was your Thanksgiving? Have you been keeping up with the uh, the World Cup as well? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually watched both games and have seen a total of two goals in 180 minutes. <laughs> and uh, I know that that is like the most stereotypical American thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, but I, but I, I actually do like I am not a European club football. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan. I just don't pay attention to it. Yeah. But I do kind of get into the World Cup. Like, I kind of love the World Cup. I'll I'll even watch, like, other countries' games from time to time if I get a chance. Um, but, yeah, it's so it's been fun. And uh, we'll see if uh, – We'll see if the U.S. can get out of this group or not. If they can, if they can score, score a couple of goals uh, next Tuesday. Yeah, they, they will have to score at least one. They they need to win to advance here. So here's what I actually wanted to start with: uh, Gordon Hayward's injury on his left shoulder. I was snooping around IG after the game, and I don't know why I was doing this. I just happened to be on Instagram and investigative reporting, Rich. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I wouldn't think anything of it. I was just on there and I saw that his wife Robin had posted something and I clicked on it not expecting to see what I was about to read and she basically was disputing the Hornets medical team about how you know how he's been out because of a shoulder bruise and she's saying it's a fracture she's saying it's broken 
And she said that she's over, you know, the medical staff not protecting the players and having them play when they aren't ready. And I know there's always two sides or three sides to a story. But if this happens to be true, like it, it's it's a pretty, pretty bad look for the the Hornets organization when it comes to reporting uh, the facts or not reporting the facts. I was at the game on Wednesday, the 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 game right before Thanksgiving against the Sixers, and in yeah. warmups he was he was going through his warmups. He looked perfectly fine shooting the ball. Like I think his left shoulder, because it's his off shoulder, might not be as in pain when he shoots the ball. But when you watch that game and you saw him drive into traffic and bump in with opponents, he naturally had to shy away. And this was the game that she was talking about how he was basically. I don't know if she she used the word force, but basically he was put out there when he wasn't necessarily ready for all that type of contact. So there was no way to avoid it unless you say, hey, Gordon, only drive left to protect that left shoulder. There's really no way to eliminate contact because we also got the opposite end of the court. Last thing I'll say on this in terms of just this whole situation, if you remember, he actually re-aggravated his shoulder injury. It might have been the game prior against the Wizards, and Mm -hmm. he he was in and out, in and out, and over on the sideline, Joe Sharp is just massaging his shoulder, and they just send him back on the court, um, and I think even like re-injures it again on a dunk late in the game. So it's funny to think about that specific moment in context, now knowing that his shoulder could have been a whole lot worse than maybe just a bruise. So thoughts on that, Lee? Obviously, it's... it's uh... You know, it's tough to kind of speculate on this type of stuff, but, and, and like, you know, I think we all, you know, obviously, which, which we, we are right now, like we're, ju- we're just kind of like pontificating. I mean, you know, I, you always have to take it with a grain of salt when it's the, uh, when it's the uh, NBA wife taking to, uh, taking to social media. I mean, I remember, I remember when the Warriors got beat in 2016 and Aisha Curry like, like had a long tweet thread about how the NBA was rigged and, you know, she just, she can't stand to see the, the cheating anymore. And it's like, and, and this is a totally different situation. It's an injury. It's not like a conspiracy theory about the NBA being rigged, but you know, it's, it's kind of, we'll see now. What I will say though, is interestingly enough, last night, Adrian Wojnarowski tweets after, you know, after all this had happened, he tweets that Hayward will be evaluated week to week on his return from a fractured left shoulder. So he does have a fractured left shoulder. So like that is factual. Yep. Whether the whether the training staff was irresponsible in any way, I think we can only kind of guess on. I will say unfortunately, I think that the train the Charlotte training staff um, has given a little bit of ammo to people that might want to blame yes. them. I mean, with the you know with the Cody Martin thing, all of a sudden he just out of the blue, out of nowhere, has surgery. With Lamelo's comments about how he maybe wouldn't have played if Dennis Smith Jr. wasn't injured and he wasn't quite so. Like it does kind of suck that there's a little bit of like if there's smoke, there's fire thing going on here, you know. Um, but at the same time, I think. You know anybody in the Twitter sphere trying to uh, trying to play doctor is probably going to be wrong more than they're right. Uh, so, but but it is interesting, and I and I think uh, I think we 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 would have been you know I, a lot of Hornets fans are talking about this, so we needed to at least bring it up. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, where people have gotten on to Gordon Hayward about him sitting out probably when he's just like milking his injury. But this is kind of like the opposite effect. And I know that he is he was out there when he probably shouldn't have been playing through the discomfort and all that type of stuff. So there's a narrative out there that talks about how Hayward is you know, made of glass. He's injury prone, which I don't think anyone could deny. But also there's a there's a narrative out there that he is just milking this. But to, to, to this specific situation, clearly he was out there probably when he shouldn't have been. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think the other thing with this is. I mean, now, I mean, the way that the way that Wojnarowski tweet was 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 worded is it was almost like kind of like a, you know, you know how these week to week things go. I mean, it almost sounds like it's indefinite. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if we want to kind of pivot quickly into any thoughts about the last couple of games before we go into the bigger segment, I mean, you know, last night, you know, obviously no Cody Martin, no LaMelo Ball, no Dennis Smith Jr., no Gordon Hayward. I mean, this team is just absolutely riddled with injuries to some of its most important players, particularly to its kind of on-ball playmaking um, parts of the roster. And, you know, uh, they've won two in a row at the same time. Um, So here they are, you know, kind of uh, backing their way back into in, into maybe giving some Hornets fans some some uh, false optimism potentially, but yeah, I, I mean this this team is just completely you know defunct with with the injuries and the and the rotations that they're having to put on. But it's allowed some of the young guys to get on the floor for more minutes. So I'm sure we'll talk about that either either in our interesting stats or, or here really quick. Yeah, just real quickly about some of the younger players and the players that have not gotten a lot of minutes, you know, until recently. I, I do want to talk about, and I'm sure you want to gush about Kai Jones as well, but I, I kind of want to talk about Tao Maladon. I, I think that he showed up big in the second half against the Sixers, and he picked right where he left off. And he has some skills that kind of just kind of pop off the screen to me when you watch them. And I think one thing too, like if you are going to be a player that is playing under Clifford at the very least, if you want to get onto the court, if you have nothing else, you need to be competing on the defensive side of the court. And I'm not saying Mateo has nothing else, but I'm just saying at the bare minimum, if if you want to show some kind of uh, value to Clifford, you got to compete. And I think that that's one skill that I noticed from Teo. I think that, his hot, not not necessarily his height, but his like his weight and his build. He's a little bit undersized when it comes yep. to that aspect. But he is not afraid to pick up full court. Uh, he did so in the, against the Sixers. He even got a uh, steal in the backcourt against the Sixers. He is going to force his opponents to waste some energy, wear them down. He's going to navigate screens. He's going to compete as hard as he can on that end of the court. And so he has that going for him. So I'm sure Clifford loves that aspect of his game. But there are some other things that I've been noticing with Teo that, you know, I wanted to point out whether it's from this game or against the Sixers. But, you know, maybe this is just like a point guard thing in me because that's the position that I played. But Mm -hmm. very little stuff that he does in transition. When he goes out on that secondary break, he knows the angles and how to weave in and out of traffic to where he can draw in defenders before kicking it out. And I know it seems like a minor thing, but... 
I think he is purposely drawing away defenders from his shooters and he makes that kick out pass to a shooter. And then number three, he's done a good job relatively like of getting downhill and drawing fouls. He drew fouls in the past couple of games, two and ones against Minnesota. And so, yeah, I I know that you probably want to talk about Kai Jones, but I don't want us to forget about Kale. No, I'm actually really glad you brought him up quickly because he is – he is at, he's not going to come up, at least on my end, from kind of the interesting stats perspective. So I'm glad we can talk about him super quick. Teo Maladone was a player that I was almost irresponsibly high on in the 2020 draft cycle. I think I've mentioned this before. I mean, like, I, I, as far as I know, I was the only guy on, on quote-unquote draft Twitter that had Teo Maladone as a better prospect than his French counterpart, Killian Hayes. Like, I just thought Teo was better. And, and part of the reason and, – and that's still, I think, an open discussion. Uh, Teo's on his second team. Killian's really struggled he is, um, yeah. as, as, as a high draft pick. Um, so, so neither one of them ex- has exactly blown the doors off earlier in their NBA career. But Maladone, one of the reasons why I was so high on him was he was such, a, such an intelligent uh, pick-and-roll player as, as a youth player in the French system. And he's starting to show some of that. You, you talked about his ability to kind of weave in and out and use angles and deception because he's not the most explosive guy, but he does kind of understand um, how to create advantage um, w- w- more cerebrally, I guess, as, as kind of a ball attacker. And I wish I could remember who had these stats. It, it may have been British Buzz, and I hope I have that right. That And I haven't double-checked it, but there were some stats on Twitter – about how Teo Maladon has has been the Hornets' most effective pick and roll ball handler from like a points per possession standpoint, and I do think over the last two games, Richie, he has looked a bit more aggressive um, attacking the rim. Particularly last night, he had a lot of downhill rim and lane pressure with the ball in his hands, and um, and he's been fairly efficient too. I mean, I think the shooting was always something that was, you know, kind of a huge swing skill for Maladone. And, you know, right now, you know, he's he's not a dead-eye shooter, and he's, he's low volume. He's pretty judicious with his jump shooting. But he is shooting 38% from three right now, um, and is almost at 50% from, from the field. I mean, obviously, you'd want that to be a bit higher. Um, but, I, look, he looks like a, a – I mean, he's 21 years old too, Richie, so it's like – you know, he's looking like a he's looking like a good bet from this Hornets front office for a backup, a young backup guard in the developmental pipeline that I have just been begging for for it feels like three years now. And they got two of them in the same offseason with Dennis Smith Jr. and Maladon. Yeah, he does lead uh, the Hornets in points per possession off of pick and roll ball handling. There you go. Um, but the volume is a little bit lower per game. I know that he hasn't played a lot of minutes per se, but just on a per game possession basis, it's actually not as high as like some of these other players. And it actually leads me to one of my other stats that I'm going to get into a little bit later. But are you ready to switch over to the intriguing stats section, Ali? Looks yes. Like- I okay. love this. I love this exercise, by the way. And we, Richie, we have not shared with each other oh. our stats. So, so there'll be some genuine reacting and conversation here. And hopefully, you know, there could be some overlap. There could be some duplicates, but I, I'm presenting four and you are presenting four. Is that correct? Correct. All right. So I don't know really where I, I, how I organize this or where I want to start, but I'm going to start with 
an aspect that I very much miss from last year's team. There are certain players missing from the equation that made it work last year. In addition to that, we've had LaMelo, who's only played three games this season. So that's obviously playing a role in the dip in this stat that I'm about to bring up. So the thing that I'm referring to is the time and efficiency after a made shot. Mm. Um, And this also includes dead ball turnovers. So the team is still pushing after live ball turnovers, and that's to be expected out of any team, really. And they have been very good at that aspect in you know, the past couple of years, but I'm talking specifically after a made shot. So this season, uh, seconds following a made field goal, uh, they rank 15th in the NBA. So dead center, right in the center in terms of the amount of time it takes them to, you know, possess the ball after a made shot. Last season, they were fifth in the NBA in terms of the quickness after a made shot. So that's that to me is a, a considerable drop off. Now, mm-hmm. we're more considerable difference is is not the speed but it's the the points per possession so this season after a made shot they are averaging 1.01 points per possession which is 29th in the league last year they were seventh in the league in points per possession following a made field goal so i think what i'm getting at here it speaks to the willingness that they were one you know, trying to do that to get the defense on their heels. Uh, The longer possessions also speak to the difficulty in getting open looks early in half court offense. So this, this team it's built on turning teams over and scoring without the defense getting set. I'm not sure we'll ever see them get back to that efficiency or that desire that we saw last year because of some of the key pieces. I'm sure you know who I'm referring to, but that's just something that that has stood out to me, and it's an aspect of the team that I've loved. They 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 push after anything, makes, misses, turnovers, rebounds. That's what they did last year. Yeah, it's a really interesting stat, and I think it is. So the way I think about it is like the superstructure of this offense, right? And kind of like the uh, the, the the main switchboard uh, of offensive efficiency. I mean, the Hornets are now. Eh, this is this is assuming this didn't change after any late games last night, but I'm pretty sure it's still the case. The Hornets are now officially dead last in offensive efficiency and offensive rating on the season. Um, and obviously, last season they had a top they had a top ten offense. So this this is just I think the stat that you're sharing, which is really interesting, and which was such a big part of 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 why the Hornets were top 10 in offense last year and why they were super fun to watch was because they got out and run, particularly after made baskets. I mean, I remember us talking about it multiple times on the podcast last year, just like these little nuggets of how fun and explosive they would be to get the ball out, hit LaMelo, and then hit a streaking whoever it was, you know, Plumlee, Bridges, Washington, Hayward, Ubre, whoever was running the floor. So – Like I said, the way I'm thinking about it is like the overall offensive efficiency has plummeted to such a damning degree. A big part of it is because of the injuries. Some of it may or may not be because of the coaching. And then you have all these kind of downstream offensive efficiency stats that are also suffering. And I think this is a really interesting one to point out. 
Yeah, it's it just kind of goes back to the idea that they suffer in the half court. And the way that you can combat that is try to push in transition as much as possible. But maybe they just don't have the horses to do so. So that's really the only reason that I brought up this statistic here. And I thought it was very intriguing from the Hornets perspective. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, my first stat. Mm. So the, the name of this segment is Kelly Oubre is tricking us all and hopefully another team. Um, I think there's been kind of a general energy and vibe on Hornets Twitter and even from some of us at times, including myself, kind of feeling like Kelly Oubre is having a better season than he did last year. And I think after digging into the numbers, and which is, and which is why I really like this this idea for an episode, is that I will try to make the argument here that most of the perceived improvements he has made have just been a uh, downstream effect of more volume. Okay. And so can I, can I, I want to interject here real quick. I, I like this because I have a stat on Kelly Oubre as well, mm. but I, I'm taking the positive. So you, you go ahead with your negative and I, and I will probably just kind of piggyback off of you here with my Kelly Oubre stat, which actually I was going to save to the end, but I might as well get it in here after you. Oh, this is perfect. So we do have a little bit of overlap and potentially on different sides of a, of a, yes. of an opinion. So this is actually great. All right. So I have I have the good, right? So so two of the good things Kelly Oubre is doing is he is averaging the most points of his entire career. 
And he is averaging the most steals in his entire career. And I do think a fair counterpoint to the argument that I would make would be that he, it does seem from the eye test, and I think there are some statistical backing, including kind of averaging the most steals he has as a player, is that he has been more active yep. and more locked in defensively. And I, and I think that that is a downstream effect directly to, to Steve Clifford. What, what I think the, the more kind of uh, specific point I would like to make is that from an offensive standpoint, he has not been more efficient basically anywhere on the court besides kind of like the long mid-range, which is a weird place for him to be more efficient than he was last year, but almost anywhere else. I mean, so, so to kind of explain away, for lack of a better word, the, the most uh, points in his career – is he also has the most field goal attempts of his career, but by a pretty healthy margin. Um, he's shooting worse from three than he did even last season at 31%. He's shooting worse from the, at the rim than he did last season, which that actually surprised me. Like from the eye test, it feels like he has finished around the rim pretty decently this year, but it's worse than last year. And it, and it wasn't like just by a sliver. It was like by, a, by at least a, a moderate margin. Yeah. He's shooting a, a worse effective field goal percentage than last year. He's shooting a worse true shooting percentage than last year. The Hornets are minus 6.4 net rating with Ubre on the floor, which, to be fair, the Hornets' like net rating is minus 7, so that isn't necessarily a completely damning stat. But last year, you know, the Hornets were basically dead, dead even. They were flat with Ubre on the floor. Um, and, his, and the deficient – the defensive efficiency numbers with Ubre on the floor are basically exactly the same as they were last year. The Hornets are, by the way, are like a league average defense right now. The defense has actually kind of held up uh, for the most part this season, which you would, you would kind of expect with the structure that, that Clifford has put into place. So again, my stat here is like Kelly Ubre is tricking us into thinking he's become a more efficient offensive player because of the, of the volume and the raw numbers. The caveat I would say is that I do think he has been a little bit more active and locked in defensively, but I hope that there's some team out there that won't dig far enough to think, oh man, Kelly Oubre, average of 20 points a game. Let's go grab <laughs> I would agree to a certain extent with everything that you just said. I, I, think, I think I could explain away the inefficiencies because of the volume. Let me put it that way. I think- mm, yeah. Yeah, it cuts both ways. Yeah, because he has more of a role this year, because he's asked to do a little bit more with the ball in his hands, I think the efficiency has dropped. And I'm not even going to speak to the defensive side of the court with Ubre because you're right. Maybe with him playing under Clifford, you're seeing a little bit more activity, but it's crazy to think that you need a specific coach for Ubre for him to put forth effort on yeah. that end of the court. Like, that can't, that can't be the case wherever he goes. So... The statistic that I'm going to bring up is that his drives, his rim pressure, and his ball handling possessions have all been for the better. He has changed his shot diet. I think, like you or most people might argue, because he is getting more minutes, you're probably seeing more attempts at the rim. But I'm going to look at this from a per possession, per game basis. And the Hornets are putting the ball in his hands a little bit more because of some of the injuries. I get it. But in terms of rim attempts per 75 possessions, he averaged 4.9 last year. This mm -hmm. year up to 6.7. Mm -hmm. 
in terms of drives per game. So putting the ball in his hands and letting him get downhill and drive to the rim. He was at 3.6 per game last year. He has basically doubled that at 6.2 drives per game this year. And he has 123 total drives. All of last season, he had 271. So he is basically halfway there, and he's played you know, less than half the games that he did last year. So, and then one more thing that I want to talk about with Kelly Oubre again, because when we think about Kelly Oubre, we think about the volatility with his three point shot up and down, up and down. He can roll ball handler possessions. This is kind of what I was referring to earlier with the Teo stuff this season. He has had the ball in his hands and Clifford has been asked him to play out of the pick and roll. 6.6% 6.6% of his offensive possessions last year. That's how frequent he ran a possession as a ball handler out of the pick and roll. So 6.6, think of that number. Now this year, it's 19.4 of his possessions has been him uh, you know, as a ball handler out of the pick and roll. And also his points per possession have gone up out of the uh, pick and roll. 0.66 points per possession last year, which is not good at all. To this year, it's, it's you know decent above average at 0.91 points per possession. So I think he's raising his stock. I, I would agree with you. Maybe we can trick someone into taking him on and getting some kind of assets back. But I think because he's asked to do a little bit more with the ball in his hands this year, I'm noticing a dip in efficiency, but I'm also noticing that he's just not, it's not like he's just standing in the corner, you know, taking shots or hovering around the dunker spot. And that's why he has more shots at the rim. No, he is driving. He's using pick and roll ball handler possessions. So that's the, that's the positive side that I would like to highlight with Kelly Oubre. So that's my second stat. I, I, I think that's, I think that's, yeah, that's really good, and it's kind of nice that we had um, kind of complementary and, and potentially even slightly um, differing views on that. I think, obviously, I think the easy pushback for me to make on that would be that part of the reason why the Hornets are so horrid from an offensive efficiency standpoint is because they are having to ask players like Ubre to put the ball on the floor. That being said, that's not his fault. I mean, Lamelo, Lamelo Ball is out. Dennis Smith Jr. is in and out of the lineup. Hayward's in and out of the lineup. Like the Hornets don't have any better options. U- Ubre has had to become a more well-rounded offensive player in those guys' absence, and so he's just trying to take advantage of an opportunity. And and to be fair, I do think. The right, and I think BG even mentioned this on on a previous pod. Like the right team with the right role, Ubre probably could help a playoff team, kind of in in the right situation. Like I don't think that's I don't think that's far fetched at all. So so yeah, I, I think that obviously there's the you know I would push back on the vibe from Hornets Twitter that Ubre has has kind of you know become this super valuable player. Um, at, at the deadline. That being said, he has shown a little bit more well-roundedness to his game, I think, that, that could be attractive to teams that are, that are looking for like one more, yeah. you know, one more wing with size that can make some shots. The, the truth is probably somewhere in between what you're saying and what I'm saying. So exactly. he's, made, he's made some improvements this year, but he's also dipped in some efficiency stats. Let's get to your second stat because that was, that was my second stat. 
Okay, my second stat. Um, you know, if you're if you're a frequent listener to this podcast, this is going to be definitely the first time you've ever heard about this. The center rotation update. <laughs> uh, obviously, that is in jest. We we talk about it all the time. So, uh, I think the argument that I'm going to continue to try to make here, and and if you've listened to this podcast at all, I will preface this by saying I think you would be well aware that I am not a Mason Plumley hater. Like I think Mason is useful. In certain ways. But that being said, the argument I'm going to try to make and continue to try to beat the drum on is that I would, what I would like to see is not necessarily that I would like to see Nick Richards start. Like, I, I don't particularly care who starts the game. What I would like to see is the minute allocation gap between Plumley and Richards continue to, to uh, narrow. Uh, right now, Mason's playing 27 minutes per game and Nick Richards is playing 19 minutes per game. It's not a massive gap, but, you know, eight minutes in an NBA game is is like three-fourths of a quarter. So Plumlee is still preferred by Clifford in the rotation at just about every juncture, including, including closing games. So Nick Richards on the floor for the Charlotte Hornets, 734 possessions, plus 2.2 net rating. I think what's really interesting about the Richards minutes is that you know the offense is 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 just okay. Um, obviously, the 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 Hornets' offense uh, writ large is is pretty undesirable. So it's very hard to pick out individual players and find good offensive numbers at all. But the defensive numbers are stellar with Nick Richards on the floor. And I know there are times when he gets lost uh, in rotations, and I know there are times where he gets out of positions, kind of flailing flailing for block shots that he shouldn't go after, but he really has become a more defensive, uh, sorry, a more disciplined defensive player. The Hornets allow 108.1 points per points per 100 possessions with Nick Richards on the floor, which is 84th percentile. So like they're a top, you know, 10 to 12 defense when Nick Richards is on the floor. Contrast that with Mason Plumlee. The Mason Plumley minutes, which is about a just over a thousand possessions compared to about seven hundred for Nick Richards. The Hornets are minus eleven point two net rating, and the offense, the offense and the defense is is a really bad low percentile. And then when you go to the Mason Plumley off the floor numbers, the offense is still bad, just like it always is. But the but the defense is good. So I mean, they basically mirror each other, and and so. When I'm looking at these numbers and it just becomes so kind of painfully clear that Nick Richards is an ascending talent and that Mason Plumley, although is very useful in certain ways. And what's interesting is Mason has been such an incredible like passer from the center position this year. I mean, his Mason has like an above 20% assist rate, which is ridiculous for a center, but that hasn't translated into more efficient offense when he's on the floor. So, like, it's really nice to see kind of the backdoor chemistry that him and Rozier have in, in, in kind of like pseudo-transition possessions. And, and, and he does, you know, facilitate from the high post at times, but it hasn't meant that the Hornets' offense has been any better from an efficiency standpoint. So, again... I do, I do not think Mason Plumlee should be, you know, re- reg- regulated to, like, the buried on the bench. None of that type of stuff. Like, he is still a useful player at times and particularly was useful late in the game actually last night. Yeah. But but I do think 
that you you have to kind of you have to kind of read the writing on the wall and you have to kind of continue to give Nick Richards more and more opportunities. And, and I think that's happening. I just want to continue to see it happen. Yeah, that, that's something that I've been clamoring for, too, to kind of close that gap in minutes between the two. And and to your point, I, I think people are way too harsh on on Plumlee. I think oh, last, they are. They are. Yeah. I mean, specifically in that Minnesota game in the fourth quarter alone, he had four of his six offensive rebounds uh, at some crucial points in that game where he just extends the play, gives second chance opportunities. And, you know, it might not result always in an offensive basket. And he is a guy that can pass teammates open on that backdoor cut. But to your point, uh, some of the numbers, when you bear them out in terms of the overall efficiency numbers, when he's on the court versus off the court, you do see some drastic changes in terms of um, how the team performs. I'm a big or I have become a bigger fan of Nick Richards over the course of the offseason, over the course of these uh, first 20 games or so here with Charlotte. And he is a guy that on both ends of the court, he is effective. Offensively, he could be a pick-and-roll guy. He's massive. He can get some offensive rebounds. Defensively, he can erase shots at the rim. He's not the most nimble person uh, on the court, per se. But he he is doing stuff that allows the Hornets to be successful on both ends of the court. So do you want me to go to my third stat? Yeah, so the, the only last tiny little comment I was going to make in this center rotation segment is we're still uh, we're still basically getting no PGA at the five. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think, I think all that is, is wait and see, let's wait and see until it, you know, if this roster ever gets fully healthy, let's see if that is reintroduced um, later in the season. That, that was the only other thing I was going to say, but, but again, like, like you said, I am, I'm not one of these kind of, uh, you know, hysterical Mason Plumley haters. I just think we do have kind of a, a rising young center um, on our team and, and we should probably start to get him even more opportunities. So yeah, go ahead with your third stat, Rich. Yeah. So PJ Washington, uh, just looking at it right now, he's only played 23 minutes without Plumley, Richards, Mark Williams, or even Kai Jones. I know Kai Jones and, and PJ, if they played together, PJ would probably still be the five, but 23 minutes without some of the other bigs on the court. So I'm going to stick with the big here and go with Nick Richards. And Ooh. I'm going to talk about his offensive fouls and the non-charge Ooh. variety, yeah. his yeah. setting. Um, he picked up one against Minnesota last night. So I figured I'd throw this stat in here. He has 11 offensive fouls that have not been charges. That ranks eighth most in the NBA. The leader, if you want to call him the leader, has 18, which I think is Steven Adams or maybe even Cat, so, someone up there at 18. So he is seven off the most. And so what we're doing, we're throwing out the charges. And for him specifically, we're talking about bad screens. And I know when it comes to screening, there are so many factors that come into play. Like the ball handler, if they leave too soon before the big gets set, you know, it's not always on the big or the screener that is that is in charge of setting the screen there. I've noticed sometimes that he will throw out his hip at the last second to get some last minute contact. He may not have the angle correct. And I've already talked about him not being nimble. So if he has to flip the screen at the last second, it's just not something that in his, you know, that's in his repertoire. So I don't necessarily think he's been that bad as the numbers suggest, 
I just think that he's a massive player that sets hard screens. I actually think he's been a good pick and roll player. I've been saying that since the off season. I'm just not sure how quickly this will go away if it can be fixed, but Richard's screen setting will have to be something that is looked at and it's not just him. It could be the ball handler. It could just also be his size and, and, and just the contact that he makes on some of these players. So I thought I'd throw that out there. 11 offensive fouls that are non-charges, which probably all come in the form of illegal screens. Yeah, I mean, no, I think this is a very fair point to bring up because it feels like, I mean, he it, like the stats say it, it's not quite this frequent, but it does feel like he does it every single game. Yep. And and you're right. It's as far at least the ones that I've observed, the ones that I've observed, they do seem to be more uh I think more of the blame actually does fall with Richards. I mean, you're you're yes, you're yes. absolutely you're absolutely right in that uh an attacking guard can do a lot to help a big not pick these up, but with Richards specifically, it feels like it's always you know, he knows in his brain he shouldn't do it, but he just can't quite help himself when he knows that he's not going to make, like, perfect contact. He just can't help to lean over or, like you said, stick that hip out or pivot a little bit. He just he just can't quite help himself. So I think this is, this is a real actual problem for him right now that he needs to get better at. The only thing I think I would um, – maybe to offer some optimism on would be two points that I think he had problems with early in his NBA career that he has not completely alleviated, but that he has shown the ability to focus on something he's bad at and improve at it. And, And the first example I would give would be his hands, like his hands and catching have certainly gotten better over his three seasons. He still He'll still drop one every now and then that makes you just kind of like put your head in your hands and, and, and you know, he gives away an easy basket or a dunk because he doesn't catch one. But he has gotten like, I don't know, 30 to 45% better at catching the ball, I think. The other one that he's still working on but has also improved that is, I mentioned it earlier, he had a bad habit of just flailing for block shots, you know, falling for pimp like the most simple pump fake and getting out of position. He still does it at times, but he's become more disciplined around the rim. Um, He's become more judicious on leaving his feet, and he snares defensive rebounds after challenging shots way more often than he used to. So my hope would be, Richie, that the coaching staff is noticing the same thing you're noticing and that they are working with him on this and that in two to three months or or even next season – he will have improved at this because you're exactly right. Um, he does this. He does this way too often. <laughs> yeah. All right. So go ahead with your third stat, Lee. All right. Third stat. I think we've been um, we've been kind of like bearing the lead, maybe a little bit on this one, but we've got to talk about Kai Jones a little bit. Kai Jones, who was a, a 2021 lottery pick. The Hornets traded into the first round to get him um, last year. Kai Jones is finally in the lineup. Hornets Twitter is a buzz and just just happy as can be. You know, we talked about it a little bit on the last pod. Essentially, what has happened is Steve Clifford has decided JT Thor has had some opportunities. 
and and has maybe had some moments, but just hasn't taken taken advantage of those of those minutes like you'd like. I talked about it in the last pod where you know if JT Thor isn't spacing the floor effectively, then you might as well go with Kai Jones because he does just about everything else better. Um, and so this uh, segment is obviously called. Kai Jones is a future Hall of Famer and all-time great. <laughs> so Kai, I mean, you talk about small sample size theater. I mean, I am just, I am criminally reaching here to pull out some of these stats because they don't matter yet, but I'm going to recite them anyway because they're hilarious. In 55 non-garbage time possessions for Kai Jones, the Hornets are plus 54.2. The offensive rating and the defensive rating with Kai Jones in the game would both be number one in the league by a large margin. Sustainable. Yes, completely sustainable. He is, uh, you know, Ralph Sampson, essentially. Um, Secret weapon. He he had his best game last night against the T-Wolves. He had nine points and and 13 rebounds. And, you know, obviously I'm joking about the on-off stats, but – from a more kind of prescriptive uh, and, and, and actual productive conversation point, I do think he has really breathed some, some life and energy into the second unit. I mean, I've said it a million times, but I always, and I was very high on Kai in the draft process. I had him, uh, I had him as a top 10 prospect in his class. And part of that was because I felt like he had a much higher floor than people realized because of the athleticism, the length, the energy. He seems just elated to have this opportunity. He's taking advantage of it. I think we're gonna we're gonna see some growing pains, but it feels it feels like he's kind of cemented himself in this rotation right now. And the only reason I say that is because the returning players, you know, the, the Cody Martins, the LaMelo Balls, the Gordon Haywards, the Dennis Smith Juniors, their return isn't necessarily going to impact Kai Jones' minutes like it like it might a Teo Maladon right. you know, type. Like, it, you know, P.J. Washington's been healthy. Miles Pumley's been healthy. Nick Richards has been healthy. I think Kai Jones can kind of be that fourth front court player Obviously, the other interesting thing about all this Kai Jones stuff is that he's playing particularly, or he's playing almost exclusively at the floor. He's playing with one of these other bigs. Obviously, based on the numbers I just provided, which which um, which is that the offense has been just fine with Kai Jones on the floor. I think let's wait ten to fifteen games into the Kai Jones experience. Let's get a more a, a bigger sample size, and let's see if the offense can actually be better than the offense is with Kai Jones off the floor. I don't know if that's going to be the case, though, just because when you have Richards and Jones on the floor or Plumlee and Jones on the floor, you give up so much spacing and shooting. But for now, it's it's working just fine, Richie. <laughs> I think energy is the best word that you use to describe him. He just brings a ball of energy when he gets out there on the court. Uh, yes, those statistics will definitely even out over time, but – I think everyone is enjoying his minutes when he gets out there. And the playing the four versus the five, that's been a debate that I've had. I even saw it in, in Summer League. They played him at the four, I would I want to say the first two games of Summer League or the first three games, and then the latter half of Summer League, they switched him over to the five, and he just looked way more effective in terms of just getting downhill. But 
uh, at least now when he's coming in, he's trying to make the most of his opportunity, regardless of what position he plays. I'm going to get to my final stat. This is actually my favorite one, and I know we're pressed for time here, so I'll probably go a little bit quicker than normal, but I don't have a, a creative name here, Lee, but Dennis Smith Jr.'s rim finishing is what I'm going to call it. Ooh, Very straight to the point here. He's always been a rim pressure guy throughout the course of his career. Getting there has never been a problem for him. It's always been about the efficiency. This is the first season of his sixth season where he has finished at the rim above 60%. Now, obviously, we've got plenty of games left to play. Now, could it regress? Sure. But I'm not going to argue that. But I'll, I'll say this. like He's currently shooting 67% within four feet of the hoop, which is nine percentage points higher uh, than his next closest season. What I would say is this. Outside of his first two seasons in the NBA, he's never played more than 40 games in a season. So if you want to argue the sample size, cool. But when you're comparing it to his other seasons, it's not like he's played 82 games, 82 games, 82 games. Like he's been injured for a lot of these seasons. So, so as I've watched him this season, I've noticed his strength, his athleticism, clearing space, getting into the paint, getting downhill. And I think his deceleration and finishing around the rim has been refreshing to see. And I wanted to add one more thing. I think this is the coolest part of this statistic when it relates to finishing at the rim, but more specifically during clutch situations. So the NBA defines clutch situations as a game within five points under five minutes to play. But there's a site called Unpredictable, and they define clutch in a more detailed way where mm. a basket could swing the game one way or the other. But then they have this other category, Lee, called clutch squared or double clutched or something like that, where... Mm -hmm. It's like the top 1% of impact. I think it has to be in the final minute of the game. It has to be a game that the team is either up one or the team in possession is down three. So it's, it's a smaller window. Yeah, cool. It, it's a very high impact of the game. So just to give some context here, Devin Booker has taken the most of these clutch squared shots at nine. Makes sense. At nine. So it's, you know, there's not a lot of shots to be had here. DSJ has taken four of these shots and he has made all four. Wow. And three of these four have been at the rim. And he and Giannis are the only two players in the NBA who have made all of their shots in these situations. And yes, it's only been four, maybe compared to Devin Booker's nine attempts, but. He's made all four of his four attempts in clutch squared situations, and three of those have been at the rim. That is neat. I mean, I mean, it's just neat that they have that kind of uh, yeah. Old, it's like it's almost like the ultra leverage, yeah. like like narrow scope minutes. It would make sense that Booker has taken has taken a ton of those. Um, yeah, look, I will not. Uh, you know, rehash my gushing of Dennis Smith Jr., but the rim finishing and the rim pressure, the distribution, the point of attack, I mean, it's just, it's all been fantastic. I hope he's back in the lineup very, very soon. And I hope, you know, it's it's such a strange thing, Richie, to feel so downtrodden about kind of what's happened this season, but also at the same time, have some of these young prospects that you kind of hope are part of the team's future for a long time. I mean, 
you talk about Dennis Smith Jr. and you talk about Nick Richards and you talk about Teo Maladone and Kai Jones. I mean, I mean, these are guys that, you know, should hopefully be a part of this team's future um, as some of these veterans get faded out either by contract expirations or trades. Um, but yeah, that, that's really cool to see Dennis Smith, uh, finishing at the rim and finishing at the rim even better when the, when the pressure is the highest. (laughs) All right. My last stat kind of dovetails with yours. It's a more, it's a more general clutch numbers, uh, rundown. I I try to follow this from time to time and I'm actually going to try and, make an optimistic take on Steve Clifford's offense based on these clutch numbers, which is admittedly quite a stretch. But um, so the Hornets have played in the more broadly defined kind of NBA.com clutch definition that you shared. The Hornets have played uh, the fourth most clutch minutes in the NBA, and they've played the 11th most clutch games played. They are three and eight in their clutch games, in, in games when the, the score is within five points within five minutes. They are, tw- they are 22nd in field goal percentage in clutch games. They are 15th in three-point percentage in clutch games, and they are second in assist in clutch games. They also have a higher winning percentage in clutch games than they do in real games. They've won about 37% of their clutch games and they've only won 30% of their actual games. So is, is there a, you know, is there a, a, a magic spell, a trick that I can pull to say that when the full complement of players are back, that Steve Clifford is capable of constructing a decently efficient offense because when he has a bit more uh, maybe control over kind of the chess pieces late in the game with timeouts and, you know, and, and uh, underneath and side out of bounds and, and move, you know, advancing the ball ahead late in games and, and drawing up plays like the Hornets have been better in the clutch offensively than they have overall. So yeah, look, it's, 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 it's a wing and a prayer, Richie, but I'm trying to draw some positive optimisms on the fact that the reason why the offense is so horrific is not because we we chose a coach that is a defensive dogged veteran coach and that we moved away from kind of a creative free flowing offensive coach and it's just because of the dang injuries. We'll probably never know because we are not going to get a sustained amount of games in a row. I would think with everyone healthy. I think, you know, even if LaMelo comes back, you're still going to have Hayward out. You're going to have these people in and out of the lineup. So you know, we could just pretend that this team would have been awesome had everyone been here. One thing that does frustrate me with this team in terms of the clutch operations, it's with the inability to grab defensive rebounds. And so if you were to look at the clutch stats with the Charlotte Hornets in terms of how many opponent second chance points they give up, they are dead last. They give up two and a half points in clutch situations per game this year. And that's just, it, it's one of those things where if you play good defense and you get a stop, the possession doesn't stop until you grab that offensive board. So we've seen that frustrating aspect of this team where they're giving the opponent too many opportunities with second chance points and they happen to be dead last in the NBA in terms of opponent second chance points 
in the final five minutes in a game within five points. So we're going to go ahead and wrap here. I really enjoyed this exercise with you, Lee. And if you guys enjoyed it, be sure to share this with others. Be sure to look into BuzzBeat Plus if you're interested in ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and all those different types of perks that you get with that. Also, I mentioned this at the top of the podcast. We really love if you guys can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It should take you no more than 45 seconds to do that. So we appreciate everyone joining, and we will talk to you guys later. For Lee, I am Richie. Go Hornets. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.